You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, Luke is painting for us a, another of his beautiful scenes. With not many words, he manages to evoke uh, what I think is like a, I think painters call the pastoral scene. Um, and it's a favourite of uh, people who like to tell stories or paint pictures of, go- of the, uh, the Gospels. And uh, Gennesaret is an unusually fertile region. Uh, it's so fertile that, um, so a legend goes that the fruits of Gennesaret weren't allowed in the city of Jerusalem during uh, the uh, season of feasts because they were worried that people would turn up to Jerusalem just for the good food rather than for the worship in the temple. So this is an extraordinarily fruitful place. There is, according to historians, a natural amphitheater. I think you can still go to, to visit it today where um, Jesus could have spoken at normal conversational levels and uh, hundreds and hundreds of people would have been able to hear him all at once. Um, so Luke is describing this amazing scene. And in one sense, I think he is just giving us the beautiful uh, surroundings that accompany Peter's call. There may be something also deeper going on here, something allegorical. Uh, there is the, the, the fertile shore, a crowd of people representing, in this instance, not the rejection of Nazareth that we'd seen last week, but maybe some of the faithful response that Jesus received among the people of Israel. And that's mirrored by this miraculous catch of fish on the waters, and waters maybe representing the Gentiles somehow, and uh, the fruitfulness of, of Jesus' ministry among both Jews and Gentiles. Maybe Luke is kind of evoking some of those pictures. We don't know for definite, but you know it could be there. It's good. It's good for us to think about. Um, the catch of fish, of course, indicating that abundance of the harvest of uh, evangelism, the, the fruitfulness of the church, and Peter, of course, being the first among the, the apostles, uh, the leader of the apostles. All those things are kind of um, being evoked here. And it, but as we as we picture the scene, we see some. Also some fairly straightforward encouragements and challenges uh, just in the sort of telling of the story, just some things that kind of capture our attention. I think God would speak to us about in the first instance. I think firstly we see very mundanely really, but quite an important point, how willing Jesus uh, was to try something new in order to reach people. He's standing on the shore. There's a great crowd of people. If things carry on the way they are, they're not going to be able to hear what he's going to say. And so he sees two boats, and I'm sure it was quite an awkward thing. Imagine you're driving down the high street one day, and somebody gets into your car and says, you know, take me to Forest Row or whatever. <laughs> he gets into these two boats of people he, he, he doesn't know, and he begins to speak to the crowd. And that's just a really, really simple point, actually, that sometimes it's worth us thinking outside the box in order to, uh, to serve God. Very, very straightforward encouragement, but actually it can have amazing Implications. We can be very slow to do that, but it can have amazing results. Our own church has its roots in the Methodist revival. And one of the great things about the Methodist revival was basically uh, a group of people found the gospel wasn't being preached in churches. And so people were coming, they were growing up, they're calling themselves Christians. They never heard the gospel being preached. And when this, this uh, sense of urgency came about what God wanted to do in our country, they found that the pulpits weren't open to them. They couldn't go and preach in the churches because many of the vicars wouldn't let this message be preached. So what did they do? They packed up their bags, they went home and said, oh, never mind. No, they, they, they began to literally preach in the fields. They were called field preachers. That's the kind of 
the unique characteristic of the Methodist revival. So they would go to where the workers were. There were great stories of, say, George Whitfield preaching at the uh, entrance to a um, coal mine with miners coming out of uh, the pits. I think it's somewhere in the West Country, coming out of the pits and blackened faces and their tears streaming down their faces, creating little white lines as they heard the gospel for the first time. And hundreds and hundreds were, were saved. So the same thing goes for us. Sometimes there's a, a reluctance to try something new just because it's new. I know for me, you know, if, I, if we have a plan, like something to do at church, something we're going to do in the summer or something like that, my natural instinctive response is often, I really want to think that through in lots and lots of detail. Uh, and make sure I've, I've really covered every base. Uh, so then I'll know it works, and then I'll, I'll want to do it. And you know, that sounds sensible, but actually often what's hiding behind that is a slight sense of, well, actually, a laziness, actually. A kind of a slothfulness. I was quite convicted as I read this passage. Um, there's a, a Proverbs, Proverbs 26, 13. The, the slothful man says, there is a lion in the way. There's a lion in the streets. You imagine this slothful man. He's sitting on his sofa at home. Um, someone says, let's go and do this thing. And he's like, what if, you know, what if there's a lion or something like that? And I thought, suddenly I saw a picture of myself and my reticence to sometimes do some of the things that... And actually, experience has taught me that often sometimes just getting on and doing things and doing things new. Suddenly you, you can't see the way until you're actually, actually on it. And then suddenly it unfolds. You think, oh, I'd never thought of that. And there's no way you could think it all through in advance. Anyway. Maybe it's something different for you, but maybe that's true for you. Some, maybe not a whole church situation, but a personal situation. Actually, there's something, a new way of approaching things, a new way of sharing the gospel, your faith, or of serving somebody, but you're just not doing it because it's new. Actually, that's not a great thing. That's a pretty straightforward point. Also, I think as a, as a kind of reminder also that often a breakthrough is just around the corner. I think that's like the classic... Miraculous catch of fish sermon, isn't it? Breakthrough is just around the corner. You fished all night. You know, nothing happened. Jesus comes. He says, fish on the other side. You know, loads of fish. So many, your boats are going to sink. <laughs> but it's true that when we, if we're in a situation where we're obeying God, we're clearly doing what he wants us to do, and it seems fruitless, God, God is no man's debtor. God is no man's debtor. You reap what you sow. And if you reap uh, obedience, you will sow a harvest of righteousness. You'll sow a reward in, in, in God. So he promises just at the right time. And maybe that's just for you in your current situation right now. Maybe there is a season of kind of fruitlessness in your life, but you know you're doing what God has called you to do, but it seems like there are no fish in the net. But that catches us around the corner. And a similar point. Often, God prompts us to do something that is a little out of the ordinary. Just the Holy Spirit seems to whisper in your heart, Ring that person, go and meet this other person. Uh, and it feels like it's so out of the blue, it's silly. It's like Peter in the boat going, really, I've spent all night fishing, but you, <laughs> a non-fishing expert, are going to tell me to put my nets on the other side of the boat, which is a meter away from the other side of the boat where I've been fishing. You know, it seems like that. God prompts us to do those things. And just that little prompting, sometimes obedience brings an amazing breakthrough in a relationship. Sometimes it can save people from... From sin. I remember hearing a story once about a pastor who had this overwhelming urge to go and shout through one of his parishioners' letterboxes. I think it was just, uh, God loves you. 
and um, in the middle of the night, like two o'clock, but he couldn't sleep and this feeling wouldn't go away. So he got up and he trudged through the, it was a Puritan, so he trudged through the mud and he went to this guy's house and he shouted through the door, God loves you. And at that moment, he just, it later turned out the guy was just about to take his own life. That's pretty serious. It may not always be something that dramatic. But sometimes you make a phone call and it's just the right encouragement somebody needs. Sometimes you bring a challenge and you're like, this is so uncomfortable and I don't even know why I'm saying it. And it just saves someone from a particular sin. And it pays just to listen to those little promptings. Okay. So, just a a couple of things from the, the passage. The main point I wanted to speak to you about this morning is just kind of two pictures but as I meditated and thought and prayed about what God would say to us this morning, these two pictures kind of impressed themselves on me um, in terms of what is the kind of most important thing for us as a church and for you guys that God would speak to us. The first is, the first picture is kind of zooming in particularly onto that miraculous catch of fish. And just, just try and picture it in your mind. There is there's, uh, this net so full, it doesn't even fit on one boat. Like, it needs two boats. These silverfish, they're not tiddlers, are they? They're, they're not small fish that have been caught. And um, so full, the, the net's nearly breaking. The boats are nearly sinking. That's the first picture. The second picture is, I'm sure there's probably a, a classical painting of this somewhere. Um, but I can't think of who might have painted it, but anyway, is Peter at Jesus' feet. So I'm not sure whether this could have happened in a boat, so maybe after they came back to the shore, I don't know. But Jesus, uh, Peter falls at Jesus' feet, overwhelmed with uh, the fact that this man is, at least in, in Peter's awareness, a holy man, a prophet of God because of this miraculous catch of fish. And he is so overwhelmed with his own unworthiness, which is a theme that emerges again and again in Scripture. We've already heard from um, Isaiah, you know, who am I to speak and that sort of thing. But Peter's overwhelmed his unworthiness and, and he's sort of pushing Jesus away, he's verbally he's pushing away, but you can almost imagine him covering his, his head and holding out his arm. He's, he's kneeling on the floor at Jesus' feet and he's saying, depart from me, Lord, I'm a, I'm a sinful man. That's, those are the two pictures. And as he holds out his hand in this unworthiness and this this abject kind of uh, humility before Jesus in this realization, Jesus says to him, come and follow me. From now on you will be a fisher of men. Both of those pictures point to the same thing. And this is kind of the main point this morning. When Jesus comes into our lives, he is not just interested in saving us. When Jesus comes into our lives, he is not just interested in saving us, but he is interested in calling us to a whole new way of living. A whole new way of living. So this, this miraculous catch of fish is, is, is kind of a picture of one understanding of what, what salvation involves. God comes into our lives, Jesus breaks into our lives, we become aware of the gospel, and a whole host of natural benefits come with it. You know, you've got Peter, he's not catching fish, and suddenly Jesus comes along and he's catching fish. Well, that's a picture of salvation, isn't it? We go through life without God, and to some degree our lives are empty. Some people more empty than others, but without God there is a lack of fruitfulness there. 
There's a lostness and a brokenness in our lives that when Jesus comes in, he fixes. He fixes. He brings healing to us. So he heals the wounds of sin. He sets us free from guilt and from fear of death. The law breaks into our lives. And, and the law of God, which is not just there to condemn, but to lift us up and say, this is how to live, brings wisdom and peace. And he brings all these benefits. And suddenly we, 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 we see how good God is, that we have a good father who loves us and wants to bless us abundantly. But that abundance is so great, actually, that it kind of sinks the boat. You know, it's, it's so great that it actually says, you know what, if this was just about abundance, God wouldn't sink your boat, would he? It, it's an abundance that points beyond itself and says, I want to bless you so much so that you're so full of goodness that you overflow to the world around you. So, so it's, it, you know, our, our message isn't just about God fixing us, is it? It's fixing us so we can then serve him fully. We can, we can overflow with his goodness to others. So the psalmist says, I call with all my heart, answer me, Lord, and I will obey your decrees. I call out to you, save me, and I will keep your statutes. So that's, that's the first picture. The second is the same point, really, but from a different direction. Peter's humiliation. It points to another aspect of the gospel, another thing that happens to us when Jesus comes into our lives. We are humbled. We are humbled when Jesus comes into life because we become aware of our complete inadequacy before God. We see ourselves as we really are. Like, like Peter suddenly saw himself as he was. So we see ourselves. When Jesus comes into our lives, we see our, how unable we are, of course, to attain to heaven. How completely useless our moral efforts are in, compare, in comparison to God's efforts. We see it so clearly. <coughs> He realized, so Peter realizes I'm worthless. So do we. Not just about the uselessness of our own righteousness, but also that just he begins to show us all the sort of knots, the little tight, you know, tight knots that's so hard to untangle of our own pride. How foolish we are to, to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. He begins to show us who we really are. We begin to see our hypocrisy. We begin to see our pride that imagines, you know, we, 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 we want to look good in front of other people. We want to make ourselves feel better. So God humbles us in Christ. But that humility, or that humiliation, if you like, isn't supposed to be passive. That's not where God leaves us. God doesn't humiliate us just to say, you're useless, you're worthless, just completely depend on me and let me do everything. That's a misrepresentation of the gospel. And there are quite a few people who believe that, actually, implicitly or explicitly. He doesn't reveal our inadequacies just to say to you, just leave it all to me. It's that precisely that moment for Peter when he's like this before the Lord. That's what qualifies him. As he realizes his unworthiness, his emptiness, his inabilities before Christ, that's the thing that Jesus says, right, I can take that and I can make an apostle out of you. And God wants to do the same for us. As we, as we realize how we are before God, he's able to, at that moment of humility, he's able then to call us and use us for what his plans are. 
So here's the point then. Our salvation consists not only in God fixing us, nor in God humbling us. But his salvation consists in him calling us to a new life. Jesus came into Peter's life. And he took what he was. And he not only saved him, he transformed him. He took this deeply, deeply flawed inadequate man with a, with a few natural gifts and a lot of sin in his own word, a limited perspective, a country bumpkin, really. And he made him into someone who not only became alive in the awareness of God's love, but someone who was able to live out the commandment to love his God and his neighbor as himself. Simon, this wavering reed, became Peter, the rock of, of a church. He, this, the fisherman ushered in thousands upon thousands of people into, into the kingdom of God. And he, he went on this journey that led him eventually to literally lay down his life. So he was crucified like the Lord for the sake of Jesus and for the gospel. So, so God comes into Peter's life. He, he shows him, I'm calling you to more than this. He humbles him. He, but he turns him inside out. So in the words of Luke in the book of Acts, Peter could turn the world upside down. He enabled him to love God with all his heart, mind, soul and strength. Jesus made him into, in short, a son. An adopted son of God. And and this is the point for us this morning. God's purpose for you is not simply to save you from your sins or the consequences of your sins, not simply to humble you so you depend on him utterly, but more than that, so that you become children of God, who are not only able to receive God's love fully, but are able to return it perfectly in the way that you live, heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it's that exchange of love Not just passive receipt, but the exchange of love where in seeing how much God loves us, in being humbled, in being blessed, we then return that love to him that we we are acting like sons. When we give our lives back to him fully, there's this exchange that takes place where we're filled with the life of the Spirit. Every Christian, every Christian has a duty to set their sights on that fullness of life. Not just receiving, but returning with everything in you. Everything in you. We have to set our sights on it. We have to pray. We have to expend energy figuring out what is God's calling on my life. We call that thing, we call it vocation. Each of us has a calling, a vocation to God that enables us to return to him fully, everything that he's given to us. And that's the challenge that God wants to bring to us this morning, is to think upon that. What is God's calling upon you? So I've got a few kind of speedy points. Fingers crossed. We'll see how we go. But it's it's not just an infomercial. I'm not trying to give you just a bunch of facts to take away. I think each one helps us to examine exactly what that means, vocation. Because we hear the word and it immediately conjures up certain things in our minds, like monks or something like that. But that's what it conjures up for me. Maybe something different for you. <laughs> uh, 
uh, comes up different things. And so it enables us to understand what we're talking about, but also I think there are particular personal challenges in this um, for us. So firstly then, firstly, just beginning with those two pictures. Firstly, let's say I think Peter, again, on the, kneeling on the floor before Jesus, holding his hand out, saying, Lord, depart from me. Firstly, vocation takes humility. Vocation takes humility. The Bible says perfect love casts out fear. Each of us has a fear that we are useless, worthless, that we're worth less than the people around us, that God doesn't really need us or want us and so on. He loves us perfectly. He doesn't want us to carry that fear. And fear leads us to think like, to, it, it leads us to pride. Because in our pride, we think, well, if I'm worthless, I need to make myself worth something. And so we grab things. We grab identities and possessions and activities and kind of self-branding. We, de- we define ourselves in certain ways so that we feel and look more valuable to other people. And all that's just nonsense, isn't it? God sees us perfectly how we are. He's made us a certain way. And he has a role for us in his kingdom that nobody else has. And he wants us to be perfectly assured and free of pride so that he can tell us, this is what I want you to do. And us not go, is that all? (laughs) Because the thing he has for you is perfect. You may not like the sound of it. You may not like how it looks. The thing he has for you is perfect. And humility is just accepting good. Our Father's perfect plans for us. So vocation takes humility. So Peter was not disqualified by his recognition of his inadequacy. His humility qualified him. It didn't disqualify him. And the same for you. So the Bible tells us, for us to serve God fully, we have to be humble. That means we have to be ready to let go of those things that we have, often in ignorance, taken for ourselves, those sense of identity. This is who I'm going to be. When you're young, this is who I'm going to be when I grow up. Or this is what I'm good at. Or this is, this is the thing that will make me happy. We have to be willing to let go of those things in order for God to use us. We have to be willing to be humbled, to be corrected by God, to be disabused of our blindness to who we are. And for God to speak, this is who you are. This is your identity. So um, Paul writes to the Galatians, Galatians 6, if anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. He writes to the Romans in Romans 12, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. You know, I mean, throughout the Bible, we see God's attitude towards the proud, his preference for the humble, and how he's able to use those who are humble. You think about, you know, Isaiah, who am I, a man of unclean lips? You know, Moses, you know, I'm, I'm not a good talker. Paul even said he wasn't a great speaker, you know, the, 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 the uh, apostles of the Gentiles. So just to challenge you this morning, are you willing to let go of those things that perhaps you've taken to yourself, identities, ambition? <laughs> I don't know that's significant, but <laughs> my ambition is to be an uninterrupted speaker. <laughs> God's just take, taken that from me, yeah. <laughs> Are you willing to, for God to take away those things that you've taken for yourself? Maybe you think you've got a calling, but does God think you've got that calling? <laughs> go 
God wants you to be. Are you imprisoned by your ambition? Are you imprisoned by an identity you've taken for yourself? God wants you to be free. So vocation takes humility. Secondly, that just reflecting on that other picture again of the boats laden with this fish and sinking on the Sea of Galilee, not, this, not the Red Sea. Vocation is supernatural. That's what that picture gives us. God, when he comes into our lives, Jesus is not just about fixing you so you can be the best version of you. He, he, we, are, <laughs> we are spiritual beings fused with physical beings. That's the way God has made us. And our vocation is, is a combination of our natural ability, but it's infused with the light of heaven. So you think about when you walk into like a, a cathedral or something, there's stained glass windows all around. You go in, and what's the purpose of those windows? It's to bring light into the building. That's the first purpose. So when God comes into our, into our lives and he begins to bring healing and forgiveness and all those things into our lives and all the blessings of following him, part of it is just bringing light, you know, making sure everything is in the right place. But those stained glass windows bring something else. They bring color and they bring story. They bring a sense of heaven. That's what they're designed to do, whether you like them or not. I mean, I happen to like them, but you know. So your life, your vocation in God is not merely just to take your gifts and abilities and for you to serve God as best you can in a natural sense. It is to, for your life to be infused with the glory of heaven. You are like a, a fountain. You're, you're a bridgehead between heaven and earth that God's love and grace flows out through. And, and your job, and really it's, it's kind of like if someone's to say to you, well, what does that look like in real life? It's like well, asking, well, what does a stained glass window look like? It looks like as many stained glass windows as there are in the world. It's, you can't nail it down. But the thing each of us has to think about, and God would give us this morning, to give you this morning to think about, is what does my life look like if the glory of heaven is shining through it? So yes, maybe you're using your gifts and abilities that God has given you. Maybe you're looking at your life and saying, I'm good at this and I'm not so good at that, and maybe this is what God is calling me to. But the question is, in your situation, is the, the love of Christ being displayed? Is the grace of the gospel being shown forth? Is something of the peace of heaven radiating from you? Is the, is the beauty of Christ being shown through you? Is, is the truth that leads to his throne, like pointing through your life to God? Is there this supernatural sense? Is the power that you're drawing from to serve God simply natural? Or are you doing things that actually require supernatural resources? Could someone look at your life and say, there is a good person, and that would explain everything about you? Or would they have to say, you know what, even the best person, I'm not sure, could do that. So vocation is supernatural. How are we doing? Time for six other things? (laughs) I'm not sure if you think I'm joking or not. Let's try and be quick. Okay. Thirdly then, your vocation is unique. You know, we talked, uh, I've talked a few weeks in a row talking about how um, God's glory is reflected uniquely through every person. In heaven, everyone will be, will be eccentric in a lovely way because <laughs> we'll all be completely ourselves, completely like Christ, but completely ourselves. I, in fact, I remember, I, I was thinking about this morning, I remember a, a saying, like someone said, like, um, 
People who are living completely for God are like, we're all like planets, but when you see someone who's all out for God, they're like a comet. You know, they, they, uh, they shoot across the sky at odds to everybody else. And you, and you look at them and go, oh, where, what are they doing? Where are they going? It's so crazy. But actually, comets have an orbit too. They go round and round in massive ellipses. But their orbits are so big, they don't make sense to us. I like that. I don't know if you like it. But I like it because it, it's saying, I want to live a life that's so, that makes so much sense of God. So much sense of the gospel that it begins to not make sense to other people. You know? Anyway, so um, our vocation is unique because each of us is made uniquely in God's, glory, in God's image. To be just like Jesus, but just like ourselves. So was it just a coincidence that Jesus chose Peter? Could he have chosen James and John first to lead the, the apostles? I don't think so. I think it had to be Peter. It was Peter's Peter-ishness that qualified him. You know, he, I think it must have been something about his readiness to repent. What do you look for in a leader? That's got to be part of it, hasn't it? A willingness to say, yep, I messed that up. Because <laughs> that seems to characterize Peter, as what do we know of Peter's life. That's there. I think it must have been, you know, it must have been something to do with the hard work. You think that they're, they're there, um, when Jesus calls them out into the boats and says, set out into the deep water, they're cleaning their nets. These nets are really expensive. And they had to be cleaned thoroughly so they could be used again. So he'd been out all night, then he was cleaning his nets, and he was probably looking forward to having a, a nice long kip. And they, Jesus says, go out again, and he does it. Not, I'm not sure many people would have agreed to that. So Peter's this hard-working, ready to repent. Maybe his time spent out in, you know, on lakes in creation gives him this understanding of God. He's this zealous guy. And God takes Peter, the raw materials of Peter in his Peterishness, and transforms him into, he transfigures him. You know, it's still Peter, but he's Peter in this new way. A fisherman becomes a fisher of men. That's a connection. But he's still a different person. And the same for you. Your vocation is unique. The psalmist says, Psalm 104, How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. The earth is full of creatures of all types. The heavens are full of angels of all types. And this church is full of people of all types. Everyone is different. So there's not one way to be sold out for God. There's not one way to give your all to him. People don't have to be like you or like the things that you like in order to be giving themselves totally for God. And you, more reassuringly perhaps, you don't have to be just like everybody else. God has made you a particular way with certain preferences and characters and so on. So your vocation is unique. Fourthly, vocation is not one thing. You know, I think uh, the biggest danger in using the word vocation is that we think of it as like one big thing. My vocation is to be a pastor or a monk or a whatever, IT specialist. I'm just thinking of things. (laughs) Anything. (laughs) So this... uh, (laughs) Vocation is not one big thing. It's everything God calls you to. You know, uh, actually, these days, people define themselves usually by slightly more than one thing. Uh, I found a, a Twitter bio, you know, under Twitter, Twitter, and people just give a little description of themselves. I have to write a little bio for Life in the Spirit, and it's just the most excruciating thing. Like, yeah, my name's Jeff, and I like to talk about theology. Or, you know, There's more to it than that, you know. 
But on, the, uh, on Twitter, you get these little bios, and I found one that was uh, this. A guy described himself as an aesthete, techno-philosopher, and imperfectionist. So I wrote to him about my one about humility. And, uh, <laughs> no, but so anyway, vocation is not one thing. It's not three things either. You know, often, if God calls you to something, there may be one overriding characteristic. You know, maybe that God calls you to do some, a job that sort of shapes the rest of your life, a calling to a particular place or a role or a certain personality trait that defines every other part of your life. But it's not just one thing. It's every aspect of your life. It's where God has placed you, the opportunities he's given you, the preferences you have, the things that make your heart sing, and the things that make you go, oh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> the duties we have. You know, so if, if you're a, a father of four children, just to take a random example, <laughs> part of your vocation is to be a father for four children. If you think God is calling you to be you know, a trainee matador in Spain, <laughs> that's probably not what he's doing, right? That's probably not part of your calling. <laughs> that's not as random as it sounds, but I'll explain personally if anyone's got any questions. <laughs> so vocation is not one thing. It's all our duties, our responsibilities, our ordinary life, but it can be infused when they're made with a general character with an overall call. You know, and the picture that came to mind is, you know, you get um, a key and it's got all those little bumps on it, like a Yale key. Uh, each one of those bumps is significant, isn't it? And you put it into the lock, and it's the combination of things that enables the lock to turn. The same for you, the combination of your personality and your where God has placed you and your loves and the things that you're good at and the things you're not good at make a, a kind of key. And God's house is full of locked rooms, if you like, that are full of glory. And you're, you're the key that can open that door and display a glory that nobody else can in your combination of things. So vocation is not one thing. Fifthly, I think this is really super important, especially, I think the importance is highlighted when you're in a community as a church. Vocation changes over time. You know, no matter what stage of life you are in, no matter what your circumstances, you are called, you are called to pursue that absolute giving of yourself back to God. But it may not look how it looked five years ago. Ten years ago. How it looks now may not look the same as it will in five or ten years. The next time Peter has a, experiences a miraculous catch of fish, it's recorded in John 21, when Jesus restores him. And Jesus tells him, as he restores him, and as he reaffirms this calling on his life, he tells him, your vocation will change. Not those words, but he says this, truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. He's talking about his martyrdom. So think of Peter, this leader of the Twelve, during Jesus' ministry. There's one thing. The preacher at Pentecost, the evangelist, another. The council leader in Jerusalem, the evangelist to, to the early church traveling around. The leader of a church in, in Rome, the writer of scripture, the martyr. All of these things were part of his vocation, and it changed over time. God called him to do different things. Likewise for you, what God calls you to do may change, but he is calling you, no matter what stage of life you're in, he is calling you to give your all. He uses the changes in our circumstances, the changes in our bodies and our minds, in our abilities. And part of the trust, part of that lack of fear, is to know that 
in all those circumstances, God can be most glorified in you. And you can be satisfied in him as you give your all to him, perhaps in a new way. So we have to listen, pray, God, show me. How can I best give my life to you here and now? Sixthly then, vocation is not a big thing. What I mean by that is simply, if you talk about vocation and God's calling on life, it could sound like one of those Tim Robbins motivational kind of like, you're the best, you're a person of destiny. That's not, the kingdom of God is famously upside down, isn't it? Things that matter in the kingdom do not matter to the world. And we can only see them in heaven. C.S. Lewis writes in The Great Divorce, I've used this book called The Great Divorce. I've used this illustration before, but it's so good I couldn't help myself. Um, The Great Divorce is like an imaginary tour of heaven. This guy goes on this tour. And as he's going on this tour and he's meeting people in heaven, he encounters a woman. um, And and this is the, the, the description of this woman walking through heaven. First came bright spirits, not the spirits of men who dance and scatter, not the spirits of men who dance and scatter flowers. Then on the left and the right, at each side of the forest avenue came youthful shapes, boys upon one hand and girls upon the other. If I could remember their singing and write down the notes, no man who read the score would ever grow sick or old. Between them went musicians, and after these, a lady in whose honour all these things were done. And he thinks it's Mary. He thinks it's Mary, the the mother of Jesus. So he he asks his guide, you know, he he begins to say, is it Mary? And the guy says, no, no. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name is Sarah Smith, and uh, she lived at Golders Green. N11, I think that is. (laughs) And so he says, she seems to be like a person of particular importance. Yes, the guide replies, she is one of the great ones. You've heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. Well, who are all these young men and women on each side? They're her sons and daughters. Well, she must have had a very large family. Every young man or boy that met her became a son. Even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was a daughter. Well, isn't that a bit hard on her own parents? No. There are those that steal other people's children, but her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Well, what about all these animals? A cat, two, two, dozens of cats, and all these dogs. I, I can't count them. They're birds and horses. These are her beasts. Well, did she own a zoo? I mean, this is a bit too much. And the guide replies, every beast and bird that came nearer had its place in her love. In her they became themselves. Now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. He he writes, I looked at my teacher in amazement. Yes, he said, it's like when you throw a stone in the pool and concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is still young. It has hardly come to its full strength. But already there is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint, such as yonder lady, to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. Vocation is not one big thing. If we're serving God, the littlest thing, the little finger, could be the biggest thing in heaven. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Riches worth nothing here, nothing in heaven. Like glass beads that the explorers took with them. Worldly glory is ash and rust, but things of this life that last forever, gold, silver, precious stones with which we build our lives, Paul says may be almost completely invisible to the world. To visit the sick, to the imprisoned, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to house the homeless, to have gentleness and faithfulness in a marriage or in your parenting, 
to have a home that's filled with the grace and peace of Christ, to speak kind words to people, to small acts of compassion that imbue people with the nobility of the image of God, small acts of courage and bravery that change the world fractionally, fractionally at a time, and maybe we won't even know their effects until we get to heaven. Tiny denials of laziness could change the course of history. So vocation isn't one thing, and neither is it one big thing either. It's lots of probably very humble things. Next then. Vocation isn't just what comes easily. This is pretty straightforward. A jumbo jet can tow a caravan. That's not its vocation. You could do the school run in a Lamborghini, but that's not its vocation. You can use a pneumatic drill. When you take, you know, take those ice cubes out of the fridge and they're all stuck together and it's really annoying. You could use a pneumatic drill to break them up. But that's not its vocation. So in one sense, vocation is finding the thing that, that you do best, that comes most naturally to you, or that you can do that others can't. And, you, and finding something that, in a sense, it comes easily because it makes you happy, because you're good at it, because you enjoy it. It's partly about being happy and fulfilled. But that doesn't mean just doing things that are very easy. It's about making the most of all the gifts God has got for you. That's vocation. So are you doing that? You're doing what comes easily, or are you making the most of all the gifts God has given you? That's something to pray about. Next vocation is hard work. So just because we're doing things that make the most of all our gifts, it doesn't mean it's going to be uh, it's going to be a life of leisure. There are some things that we don't know that we're good at until we practice, until we persevere, until we we put hard yards in. There are some things that we're called to do and we find them difficult to start with because we're sinful, because we're lazy, because God's still fixing us. There's some things that we think we're good at and we only find out we're rubbish when we try to do them. But, you know, to give your all to God takes courage. It takes fortitude. It takes perseverance. It takes things that are hard work, but that hard work is is, is part of of giving your all to God. Now, in a sense, this is, for me, as I was thinking about this, it's almost the most subtle point, really. Because ha- if something is hard, how do you know if God is calling you to it? Maybe you're in a situation right now, you're going through something that is tough. And the question is in your mind, is, am I called to this or not? Because actually, if, if you're giving your all to God, you're laying down your life, it's going to feel a bit like dying as well, isn't it? When you're doing the thing God has called you to do, you're giving your all. It's going to leave you kind of feeling like you've given your all. So how can you tell the difference? I think you can tell the difference by the, the fruit that comes from your labor. You know, who is benefiting? Is God being glorified? Are people being blessed? Are you growing? Is that the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Or is there a distance from God? Are people not benefiting? Are there no fruit? Do you find yourself with the works of the flesh emerging, anger and all those things? So vocation is hard work. Lastly, vocation is not productivity. Again, one of the dangers of talking about vocation is that all this sounds like an awful lot of hard work. Like, and in our culture, our culture kind of values people who are productive, right? Who, you know, give and give and give. And we don't really know what to do with people when, 
you know, they, they, they can't work anymore or something. We don't know how to value them. Hopefully we do in the church, but generally the culture finds that hard. Well, vocation is not productivity. It's not productivity. It's not just constantly doing, doing, doing. That's not what it means to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's this perfect balance of receiving and giving. The Apostle Paul, I think, talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. I think this is what he talks about. He, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. It's kind of that almost boasting thing that only Paul can get away with, isn't it? <laughs> Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. There, to, to be giving your all to God is not to be exhausted. It is to be filled and to overflow. It's this perfect balance between rest and work. You know, it's an amazing thing with um, talking to someone about this the other day. You can imagine the conversation anyway. This thing when babies are, are born and they, they drink, you know, just breast milk. That actually, if they get just the right amount, they can grow and flourish. And there's nothing left over without putting too fine a point in it. <laughs> that's true. And that's, that's, kind of what, that's kind of what it's like for us. God wants to fill us. And we, you, and we can use everything that he gives us. We can be so satisfied that we grow and give our all. And we're not exhausted. There's nothing wasted. So vocation isn't productivity. So don't feel like this is a message where God is calling you to like, try harder, try harder. You've got to use every second of your day to serve me. No, it's, it's rest as well. It's, it's appreciation for your father. So let's wrap it up then. Simple challenge. Are you looking to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Have you understood the notion of sonship is not just passivity? It's giving back what God has given to you. And in that is fullness of life. Have you got it? Are you experiencing a sense of stagnation in your life? That actually God has blessed you, but you don't really know what to do with it. God is calling you to discern this vocation. It's like, God, what do you want me to do with this enormous catch of fish you've given me? He's waiting for you to say, okay, well, what's now? You know, perhaps you're young in your faith and you're still in that stage of feeling thankful for all the things God has given you. You're still that, that fresh flush of forgiveness. And of seeing the benefits, maybe you've seen your life change or your family change, all those things. Now, with this message, God is saying, okay, we've begun. But I'm calling you to live a life of service to me. You know, maybe you've grown up in church and you wonder what all the fuss is about. Actually, it's a call to that transition from what a child does, which is to receive quite naturally and with no imputation of guilt or anything like that quite naturally children receive but there comes a point when you have to think well how do I give back you know how do I become an adult and God is calling you perhaps you feel like you're not getting anywhere with something you've reached a dead end God would I think he would encourage you to discern is it pride that's led you to a dead end or are you in a place where he's calling you to work hard and that's okay? That's part of your vocation. Ask him. Are you stuck in a false humility? Like Peter's like saying, Lord, depart from me. I can't do anything. I'm so rubbish. God would just 
speak to you and say, that's just nonsense. I have a calling for everyone. My, my, my salvation is like a, is like a NASA rocket that I want to strap to your back and launch you into heaven with. Doesn't matter how rubbish you think you are, how insignificant you are. My salvation is not insignificant. Doesn't matter how your personality or your quirks or your preferences, you feel like they disqualify you from doing amazing things for the kingdom. It's just not true. Every person is called like that. You know, and I think actually specifically, I believe that maybe there's people here this morning who God is calling to some big change in their life. That really impressed on me as I prepared this message. And maybe even someone who feels a call to be a fisher of men. A call to evangelism. And if that's you, already you'll be starting to feel like, yeah, maybe that's me. And I just encourage you to respond to that. Maybe just in prayer. Maybe just get someone to pray with you today or go home and like really seriously commit that to the Lord. So God is calling us to be sons to be sons, to pursue the life of Christ. And the promise is, in Scripture, that if we pursue this life, where we give up our lives, where we take up our cross, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, we love God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength, while the world will look on and perhaps think we're foolish, will perhaps look at us and go, look at them suffering for Christ. They are to be pitied above all people. The Apostle Paul tells us we will have fellowship with Christ of the most intimate and wonderful kind. We will come into a fullness of sonship that we have, uh, will have a straining at the earthly restraints of life. We will come up against, because we're trying so hard, we'll come up against the limitations of our fallen and broken bodies and minds. We'll come against the limitations of a world that's yet to be redeemed. And we'll develop, as we serve him, a hunger for heaven that will sort of catapult us into resurrection life. We'll be so full of joy if we pursue vocation. That we will, like like Paul said, I long for Christ. I want to be in his presence. I can't wait to go. I'm like torn. I want to keep on doing what I'm doing, but there's more. That, that's the hunger God wants to provoke in us by getting us to pour out our lives in him. We'll be running our race so well that death will be just like a, a finish line and we'll be just jogging into heaven. You know, and if that transfiguration of a fisherman into a fisher of men was a big change, imagine what the transformation will be of the apostle to a heavenly resurrected person. (laughs) There's a continuity. You'll still be you in all your uniqueness. Everything you've experienced will be preparing you for it. Everything you experience will have prepared you for heaven. But even the most fully alive Christian is just a seed planted in the ground waiting to be raised to eternal life, utterly transformed. The Bible says the perishable will be clothed with the imperishable. What is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. What does a fisherman do in heaven? I don't know. What does an apostle do? What does a pastor do? (laughs) What does a housewife do in heaven? I don't know. But it's going to be even more amazing than everything God has for us here. Fully alive with the love of God. Knowing it. Returning it. Pouring forth with it. Pleasures forevermore at his right hand. Let's pray.